of Jesus. All right, um, let's go ahead and let's get started. We've taken, uh, so far, we've taken three weeks, and we've talked about how the Bible is for everyone. Um, the Bible is for all people, how the Bible is for you, the Bible is for me, all people through all time. Um, and we've talked about three steps, specifically three steps for um, what we're calling inductive studies. Just by way of reminder, inductive study says that we go to the Bible without an agenda. We let the Bible set our agenda. We let the Bible be the thing that informs us. And so we don't take our preconceived notions and ideas to the Scripture. Rather, we look for the Scripture to interpret um, our ideas. So we don't interpret our ideas by Scripture. We in, I'm sorry, we don't interpret Scripture by our ideas. We interpret our ideas by Scripture. Messed up the first time. Don't listen to that part. All right? Um, we go to the Word of God, and we say, what does the Bible say? What does that mean? How do I apply it to my life? We don't go in saying, how can I get the Bible to say what I want it to say? We go in saying, what has God revealed to us? So we have three steps for inductive study. All right? Does anyone remember step number one? Starts with an O. Observe. And our question for that is, what does it say? We observe and we ask, what does it say? Um, second step. What was the second step? She asked what it started with. Not, I'm not telling you now. Interpret, interpret. I heard it, I heard it. Observe, interpret, and then the last one is? Apply. apply. Oh, look at you guys. All right. One stuck with, I'm just kidding. All right. It's been two weeks, all right? We've got Nate, I've slept since then. Guys, come on, you know, all right. Observe, interpret, apply. Here are the questions with those. So observe says, what does it say? Interpret says, what does it mean? We can't know what it means until we know what it says, right? And then we apply. We can't know how to apply it if we don't know what it says and we don't know what it means. Good luck, right? Okay. Um, and then last week we talked about kind of the Old Testament, New Testament division. By the way, quick timeout. Um, there are notes from last week that are out in the lobby. Um, that lesson is on the podcast or the church app, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can, so you can listen to that and you can, if you can catch up if you need to or review. Um, but last week we talked about Old Testament, New Testament division. We talked about um, how to properly read through the Old Testament looking forward to Jesus, how to interpret the New Testament in light of what Jesus has done for us, what does a follower of Jesus look like according to the New Testament, some of these basic principles that we're going to press into today. So there'll be a little bit of overlap tonight, but I'm going to try not to be repetitive. So if you want to listen to that, I'd encourage you to jump on the podcast. Um, if you missed last week, so maybe some questions you have, you can see me afterwards, or again, podcast will hopefully answer a lot of those for you. All right, before we go, pop quiz. On the front page, in which sports would you do the following? All right, I'm going to set a timer for two minutes, and you can fill these out. Do not Google. Do not cheat. All right? Hold the person beside you accountable. All right? On your mark. Get, are you guys starting already? What is wrong with you? Go! Number one, use a mashy or niblick. What are our guesses? Cricket. Cricket. Oh, well, that's a bold guess. Golf! Golf is the answer. Golf is the answer. Um, before clubs were numbered, before irons were numbered, one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, these were terms used for different clubs. Number two, what's number two? Stand at a silly point. This one actually is cricket. The silly point is closest to the batter, all right? Maybe because you get knocked silly if you get hit with the ball. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. Um, dial eight. What's dialing eight? Oh, we don't have any, we don't have any, 
old school baseball fans in here? Baseball. Baseball. Dial eight, dial eight before, okay, so I'm told, I'm told that uh, before a certain year at hotels, you had to dial eight for long distance. Some of you would have to confirm this for me, because uh, the year's like 1970, so I apologize, but this is hearsay on my part. Um, but dialing eight is, dialing eight is slang for long distance, aka hitting a home run. So if someone hits a home run in baseball, they're dialing eight. All right. Throw stones at houses. Throw stones at houses. Okay, this might not actually be a sport, just saying curling. Curling is the answer to this one. All right, uh, number five, do an egg beater. Do an egg beater. Oh, swimming's close. Water polo. Water polo. And water polo, heads can't go beneath the water, and so they have to kick their legs in a circular pattern, do an egg beater. All right. Um, employ the O'Brien shift. No one. Shot put. Shot put. If you ever watch someone shot put and they face the opposite direction, they turn their body and throw, O'Brien was the first one to do that. That's the O'Brien shift. All right. All right. Number seven, five hole. Ice hockey. Ice hockey. Each corner of the goal is hole, is hole one, hole two, hole three, hole four. Between the goalie's legs is the five hole. All right. Um, box and one defense. Basketball, basketball, all right, now to one of them that I actually knew before this quiz, all right? Box and one defense is in basketball. Um, a nutmeg pass. That is soccer, that's when you pass between someone's legs. Penalized for a crackback. The real football, the real football out here. It is a, an American football term. Football is, uh, do a crackback, it's a it's type of illegal block, um, is what that is, all right. So how many of you got at least uh, five correct? Anyone? Alan? What'd you get, Alan? Four. Four. Oh, okay, that's not five. Uh, <laughs> All right, how many got, did anyone get five correct? Hands way up high, way up high. Henry did. Henry? How many did you get, Henry? Five? Is he telling the truth? Okay, all right, all right. All right. Henry never lies. All right, good. Well, that's good to know. Good to know. That's right. <laughs> All right. All right. So what's the, what's the point, right? What's the point? All right. Here's the point. Um, all of those would fall under the category, the major category of what? The umbrella of sports. But do they all have the same rules? No. Um, each sport is governed by its own set of rules. Um, similarly, when we look at different literary genres, there are going to be certain rules that are going to be appropriate to certain genres of literature. Um, just like you couldn't take um, basketball and all of a sudden you're not going to get an unnecessary roughness penalty in basketball because there probably shouldn't be a whole lot of roughness in the first place, right? All right? Um, if you play basketball with me, you might not believe that, all right? Um, <laughs> Sunday night, Matt and I were playing basketball and we were on a fast break and Matt went to stop to try to fake me out. The problem was I was not running at the basket, I was running at him and I don't stop quickly. Um, and so. Um, Ten seconds later, I'm picking Matt up off the ground, right? Um, because I just, I totally obliterated him. I, he probably, I probably get 60 pounds on him, so um, totally obliterated him, laid him out on the ground. Not allowed in basketball. In football, great play, right? Um, two different sports, two different sets of rules. 
And so as we come to um, the Bible genres, I want to understand, I want us to all understand that the genres of Scripture, while maybe not as dramatically different as different sports, do have certain things to keep in mind as we approach them for full understanding and appropriate interpretation. And so tonight, here's actually what I did. So contrary to what you might believe from the first page, I actually removed the blanks from the rest of this piece because we're just, we have to move at a certain speed to cover these things, and I want you to be able to take these home. I want to be able to, we might have to skip here or there because I want to get out at a reasonable time. Um, and I want liberty to be able to press in where we need to press in. So these notes are complete as is, now that you filled in the first page, and uh, we're ready to go. Now, it doesn't mean leave, okay, please. Um, it hurt my feelings. Um, but feel free to mark it up, take extra notes, do what you need to here. Um, so let's start with what are Bible genres? What are Bible genres? In general, a genre is this. It's a category of artistic composition characterized by similarities in form, style, or subject matter. Um, so different things that can make up genres. A lot of times, what we probably use genres in just as much, if not more than um, literary settings right now is uh, what, what else, where else do we see the word genre? What are other things we see the word genre in? Music, right? You have rock and roll, you have praise and worship, you have country, R&B, whatever. You have all these different genres of music, right? And all of them have certain characteristics that make them similar. So if I were to play country music in here and say, what kind of music is this? you're probably not raising your hand and saying that's heavy metal, it's country music, it's got twang, it's led by a guitar, it's got certain characteristics that are mostly common to country music, right? Or whatever it may be. So here are the basic genres in scripture. We have historical narrative, law, wisdom and poetry, prophecy, epistle, and apocalyptic literature. Um, now, Jewish theologians divide the Old Testament into three basic categories. Um, this is actually what we find in the New Testament. We see Jesus quoting this. We have three distinct categories. Um, and the reason we're going to press a little bit deeper, we're going to go a little bit further into these categories, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, but there are three major categories. First is the law, um, or this could be called the Torah. So how many of you guys have heard someone say the Torah, right? Um, when they say the Torah, they're specifically mentioning, they're specifically referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Another term for that would be the Pentateuch, I mean the five. Um, there are a few different terms that go in there. But the law is how the New Testament generally refers to this portion of Scripture. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, the second um, is the Nevim, or the prophets. Now, this is primarily the major prophets. If you, if you have a concordance in front of your Bible or a table of contents, it'll say the major prophets. Um, then it'll say the minor prophets. They're not minor being less important. They're minor being shorter. In fact, the, uh, most of the first century Jews would have all of the minor prophets on one scroll. So whereas Isaiah, a major prophet, would have his own scroll, the 12 minor prophets would all be grouped together in their own piece of writing just because of the length of these. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings also would fall under the, the prophets. Okay. Um, and so that would be 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, just to shorten there. Um, and then the Psalms. But the Psalms doesn't just include what we think of when we think of the Psalms. Um, in fact, it's a whole group called the Ketuvim, um, which is the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. All of these books have some kind of um, poetic theme to them, except the only exceptions to that really would be um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And what those are is those would be considered exilic and post-exilic histories, which I'll get into that in just a few minutes, so you'll actually understand what that means when I say it. Some of you guys got that, right? Um, look at Luke 24, 44. He says this, um, Jesus speaking. He says unto them, 
These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, speaking to his disciples, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in where? Watch, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Now, is he only talking about the first five books, the parts written by people considered prophets, and the book of Psalms? No, he's referring to the Old Testament as we know it, we call the canon of the Old Testament. He's referring to these things in the language of the first century. Um, now, as we jump into this next step, we're going to look at some helps for studying genres. Um, but we're going to go a little bit further. I'm going to break these down in a little bit more detail. Um, it, we've talked before about kind of the, the history and the lessons that first century Jewish children would go through. Um, and they would learn for the first 12 years of their life, they'd be committed to and dedicated to learning nothing but the scriptures, basically. Um, and so they are studying and studying and studying. And so their knowledge of the Old Testament is just outstanding. And so them dividing into these categories doesn't require a lot of explanation because they've been so entrenched in it for so long. You and I probably being outsiders to Jewish culture to some degree, although you, uh, many of you I know have learned from a Christian school or a church or some kind of setting some of these pieces. Um, I, wanna, I don't want to take these things for granted. And so I want to press into um, a little bit more of a breakdown of these categories. And so our goal today is to help with context. So as we open up the scripture, we still have to observe, we still have to interpret, we still have to apply, but this is going to aid us in going from that observation to that interpretation phase. It's going to be some tools here that we can have. So uh, with all that out of the way, let's start. Historical narrative. Um, and specifically, let's talk about the historical narrative of the Old Testament. Now, you may see, I, some of these subheadings, you may see books that are mentioned more than once. Um, and that's not a mistake, that's not an accident. Many books of scripture actually fall within a couple genres. Not all, but a number of them. Um, in fact, even if you go into uh, the Gospels, you might see some elements of poetic speaking as Jesus speaks in parables. They're narratives, but they are uh, in many ways allegorical, and they aren't uh, definitive, and so you might see that. Or in this case, um, look at that list there. Do any of those look like things that might belong somewhere else? Specifically, the last two on that list of historical narratives. What other category could those fall into? They'd be prophets, right? Daniel and Jonah are both prophets. And yet, at the same time, much of their book is historical narrative. And in fact, uh, I didn't include Jonah in uh, poetry, but Jonah is very poetic in his writing. Um, and Jonah writes in a very poetic way. Um, but there are a number, so I say all that to say, there are a number of things that can kind of go into that. So be wise as we approach these things. Um, these are not, uh, as I said before, this course is kind of a driver's training of. This is not, this is exactly how you should interpret every phase of scripture. This is, here are some guidelines and some things to follow to help you stay on course. So when we talk about narrative, over a third of the Bible is written in narrative. Did you guys notice that? Over a third of the Bible is written in narrative. Um, and there are many guesses as to why that might be. Um, I kind of think that the story and narrative, um, A, it's compelling, right? The Bible's not just a list of do this, don't do this. The narrative's compelling. Uh, additionally, God is trying to tell a story of redemption, right? God is trying to tell this big picture story, and he's playing this out. Um, in fact, stories, uh, we like stories, I think, in part because our life is a story, right? We live in sorts in story. And so narrative is something that we're all probably very familiar with in one way or another. So how do we interpret narrative? Um, the first is this. The first, road mark, the first roadblock is this. The first thing to note is this. Understanding the big picture. Understanding the big picture. 
And so what I've given you, A through H here, this is the Old, the Old Testament in 10 minutes or less, okay? So Cliff Notes, Old Testament, ready, go. Um, so as we begin, we see first of all that creation to Noah, we find that in early Genesis. So Genesis 1 through about Genesis 11, we find um, creation, Noah, Babel, all of these different things that are taking place in ancient Israel, before Israel's even established in the ancient Near East. So creation to Noah. Following Noah, mid to late Genesis, we find the introduction of Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. This is what we would consider the patriarchs. Um, and so we see his children, Isaac, and later his grandson, Jacob, and then all of his children, which we know as the ones who ended up being the ancestors of the tribes of Israel. Coming into Exodus, we meet a man by the name of Moses. How many of you have heard that name before, right? Uh, Moses is Exodus through Deuteronomy. And as he's going through these things, he's leading Israel out of Egypt, which they were in bondage to, to the promised land. But he doesn't enter the promised land. Instead, that brings us to the period of the judges, which would include the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. In the promised land, now Joshua leads the conquest of the promised land. Once he passes away, different judges are brought up at different times throughout this period. And Ruth kind of takes place parallel to the judges. Um, if, if you didn't get the chart from last week's notes, those notes are out in the lobby. There are, there's a chart of the chronology of the Old Testament that ties in with this beautifully. Um, from the judges, after the end of the judges, we have Samuel, who kind of overlaps the two, if you're familiar with him. And this leads us into the book of 1 Samuel, and introduces us to kings Saul, David, and Solomon. Here's the significant thing about these three kings. These are the only three kings that ruled the unified nation of Israel. Because after Solomon's death, the nation was divided between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and we have the northern and the southern kingdoms that we now know as the divided kingdom, which brings us to letter F. This is 1 Kings 12, um, is where the division that takes place in 1 Kings 12 after the death of Solomon. And covers the whole book of 2 Kings, the book of 2 Chronicles, most of it, um, and the book of Jonah. As far as historical narrative goes, the Babylonian captivity um, takes place next. This is the fall of Israel because of their wickedness. The northern kingdom is conquered by the nation of Assyria. Um, fun fact about Assyria, they don't really take prisoners. They don't really integrate cultures. They kind of wipe out everything they touch. So Israel, in fact, today, you might have heard of the lost tribes of Israel. The ten northern tribes, um, in a literal way, ceased to exist. Um, their people were taken. They were taken as captives. There were a lot of things that took place in that um, taking away by the Assyrians. And then the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Israel a couple hundred years later. But the Babylonians instead left a number of remnant in Jerusalem and in Israel and then took the rest of them into captivity there, which is where Daniel writes from. Okay, so he's writing from um, the, the uh, Babylonian Empire, later the Persian Empire as it conquers the Babylonian Empire. And then, uh, after 70 years of this captivity, we have the return and the post-exilic era. So the post-exile is what I was mentioning earlier. This is Ezra, Nehemiah, which Ezra, Nehemiah should be read in many ways together. Um, for a long time, this was one book, later divided, um, Ezra, Nehemiah. And then the book of Esther takes place in the same time frame as the Jews are returning to Israel and living in Israel. So historically, these are the historical books. This is the narrative of the Old Testament. How did I do on time? All right? Uh, we're flying, right? We just covered 1,500 years of history, more in just a couple minutes. For you, that means, hey, let's dig in. Let's find out where we are living. Where are we going as we step into these passages? What phase of the Old Testament life are we stepping into? Um, as we understand the big picture, this helps us to, number two, determine the main point. Determine the main point. 
And this happens in three ways. First of all, what can I learn about God? We get into the word of God to know the God of the word. What can I know about God through this situation, through this story, through these things that are taking place? Because right now we're talking about narrative. Through this story, what does the story tell me about God's character? So if you're reading through Genesis chapter 12 and you're seeing God tell Abraham um, that he will um, give him a land, give him a seed, give him a blessing, you're in chapter 15 and you're seeing, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Are we learning about Abraham or are we learning about God? Primarily God, right? Are we learning about Abraham too? Yes. But who are we learning about first and foremost? Learning about God's nature and God's character. And then God would go on to prove these things to Abraham over and over again. So first of all, what am I learning about God? Secondly, um, how does this relate to the big picture? How does this tie me back into scripture? Um, For example, um, book of Ruth. Um, How many of you guys know another book of the Bible that Ruth is mentioned in? It is in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew. In fact, um, we find it in chapter number one. Matthew chapter number one includes this really fascinating uh, genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. So we find Ruth being a member, an ancestor of Christ. In fact, being the, I believe, great-great-grandmother to a certain king that we would know by the name of David. Uh, Ruth married a man by the name of Boaz. Does anyone know Boaz's mother's name? I heard it, I heard it, I heard it. He knows this, he knows this. Reuben, what's Boaz's mother's name? Rahab, Rahab. Does anyone recognize the name Rahab? She's a harlot that we learn about in the book of Joshua. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Reuben's, telling, Reuben's now telling everybody how he knows. We were at the couples retreat this last weekend, and someone mentioned that, and I was like, hey, fun fact, all right, because that's, I'm fun at parties. Um, so, so we have, uh, so all of a sudden now we see how this connects to the big picture, right? Because Rahab, in the story of Jericho, um, and I encourage you to go back and read it in light of this, um, she's not just random woman, she's later ancestor to the Messiah. Uh, her son, Boaz, would marry a woman that we know as Ruth, one of the greatest love stories ever told, picturing and symbolizing the love story that God is unfolding throughout the entire Old Testament. And so all of these things just come together in this magnificent, beautiful way. Letter C under this is, what should my response be? What should my response be? We don't go to the scripture just for intellectual superiority. In fact, that doesn't even come out of the scripture. We go to the scripture to say, how can I respond to the scripture? What is the scripture calling me to do? What is it compelling me to believe? What is it compelling me to do with this belief? How is it belief? How is it compelling me to behave? And so this is where we determine the main point. We find what we're supposed to bring out of this. Um, And then I think it's important, three, to discern between what we would consider descriptive and prescriptive elements. Um, And I kind of give this one as a way of warning. So the first two are helpful. The third one is be careful of this. Um, Letter A, descriptive elements are this. They tell the story, but they're not necessarily elements that you should follow, okay? Um, And so they might be something that is true and that happened in the telling of the story, but we don't find any confirmation to say that this is actually acceptable or good behavior. I'll give you some examples. Um, In the Old Testament, especially in, actually really throughout most of the Old Testament, um, we find a number of men that are married to two women, right? Now, we could do a couple things. 
We could walk away and say the patriarchs were married to multiple women. Therefore, we should be married to multiple women, men. All right? That's not really how it works. Um, that's a descriptive element. That's not an element that is ever endorsed in Scripture or recommended in Scripture. In fact, we find that ending badly for a lot of these men, right? Um, and then when we come to the New Testament, we see that a bishop and that a deacon should be the husband of one wife. And we see things like that, that it's commended um, that there should be this level of faithfulness. Even throughout the Old Testament, we also see this theme, right? As Hosea, he's consistently going back to get his wife, going back to get his wife, going back to get his wife, the faithfulness there. And so we never see that being something that's lifted up and saying, hey, this is praiseworthy that this person behaved this way. In fact, we look at these men and we, uh, in many ways, follow them in spite of their weaknesses and their sins and their failures. And so as we look at this, that's a descriptive element. That's not a prescriptive element. What is a prescriptive element? That's an area of belief or behavior that we should follow after. These are best supported with clear New Testament teachings. Um, and so when we go to the New Testament, we find the things that we need as valuable for faith and practice. We find these things as being doubled down on or pressed into or explained in another way. And so don't just look at something and be like, oh, this person behaved that way, so I should behave that way. That's a lot like people saying that I should be angry and overthrow tables because Jesus did that. Um, well, Jesus is the Son of God, hence is God, so he has a little bit different level of authority than you and I have to walk into a room and start throwing things around, right? Um, and so that's an element that he is fully entitled to, um, but one that I'll probably not recommend that you and I begin behaving like, right? Um, so as we come here, let's look at the next element, the law. The law. And we're going to find some similar themes within this. Primarily, we actually find the law within the books of Exodus, um, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy are actually mostly the law. The Deuteronomy be the second giving of the law. We'll hit that when we come back to the prophets. Um, but mostly it's those three books. Um, the first five books, though, are often grouped together as the law or the Pentateuch. Um, most of what we would consider law is found in those three books. So how do we interpret them? Um, and, this is, and this is a question that I think it's very prudent for us to press into. Because narrative, um, narrative can be difficult to uh, interpret certain stories, especially. You might say, I don't get the point of the story. It may take some time. It may take some digestion, some deep thought. Um, the, law is, the law is different um, because the law is do this. Um, but how many of you guys, um, how many of you guys have had bacon in the last week? How many of you guys have bacon today? Right? Yeah. It's a law, thou shalt have bacon. Actually, we've just violated the Old Testament law in sense. So why then is it okay? Why then are we going around doing this? Why are you guys so proud of that, sinners? Right? Um, all right. Why do we behave that way then? All right, and so Steve alluded to it, and we'll get there in just a minute, right? But there's, there are reasons that we don't just, we're not just breaking it for the fun of breaking it, although bacon is fantastic. Um, we're not just doing it for the sake of doing it, right? Um, because we don't say we should be able to uh, go into um, sinful behavior just because it's enjoyable. Um, or what about, what, how many of you have, uh, well, actually maybe don't raise your hands, um, animal sacrifices? I mean, like, we don't, we don't do that. We don't do that. Yeah, this week. <laughs> All right, dismissed. Um, why don't we do that? Okay, so let's, let's press into this. Because we have to, at the same time, we have to have a consistent way of doing that, right? 
There has to be a way that actually makes sense. We can't just say, it's okay to do that, but it's not okay to do that without any foundation. We have to actually go in and say, this is why it's acceptable to do one thing and not acceptable. This is why this part of the law is in force, this part of the law is not in force. Um, and so let's look at some helps for interpreting law. Uh, first of all, understand the primary purposes of the law. As we go into law, why does the law exist? Um, three reasons. Um, first of all, it reveals the character of God. So we learn who God is through the law. Um, we begin to understand him more through it. Again, this is the purpose of all of this. Secondly, it restrains from sin. It tells us this is sinful behavior, this is not sinful behavior, this is acceptable, this is unacceptable, which still leaves us with the question then, what still bears its weight on us today? And then thirdly, it reveals what's pleasing to God. Um, it reveals how do we, so not only how do we avoid sin, but how do we actually do the things that we should do. Not just not doing bad things, but do good things. Um, so here's, this is kind of the, the way that I, I've learned to and the way that I think is the most clear. And there's actually two different ways that I've kind of pulled together because the first way is not going to, we'll get to it, I'll just walk through it. First of all, identify the type of law given. And there is a little bit of a weakness in this portion of it that we supplement with point number three, okay? Um, so identify the type of law given. Primarily what we're going to find is we're going to find laws that applied to civil governments. So this is governing national Israel. So for example, um, when your ox falls in a ditch and dies on a neighbor's property, how do you deal with that? All right? How many of you guys, your ox has fallen in a ditch on a neighbor's property recently? All right? Jim, how many of these cases? You can't talk about it, so. Um, it just doesn't, right? That's 21st century America. We don't expect to be governed by those same civil laws. Um, second, we have ceremonial laws, animal sacrifices, um, washing in the temple, the unclean um, laws, the dietary laws. Um, all of these things would fall under maybe ceremonial laws. But finally, we also find moral laws. And this is how men interact with God and other men. The moral law is the section of the law um, that through the New Testament we see consistently still enforced. Um, throughout the New Testament we consistently see um, that we shouldn't be coveting our neighbor's wives or whatever. We see different phrasing for it, right? Jesus says, in fact, whoever would look at a woman and lust after in his heart has committed adultery already in his heart. Um, whoever hates his brother without a cause, the same as a murderer in his heart. And so he actually goes on and enforces some of these things as well. Um, but here's really the crux of it. And this is what I just illustrated to you. Number three, uh, seek New Testament correlation or fulfillment. Bring it back to the New Testament. Because the weakness of this idea is this, uh, letter A, the Old Testament doesn't divide the law. So you're going to find one verse that appears to be ceremonial, beside a verse that appears to be civil, beside a verse that appears to be moral. So now I have three verses, no distinct break in thought, um, except that they're kind of independent laws. There's not a heading and a subtext that says this one is a ceremonial law. That doesn't exist. And so we have to be careful not to just arbitrarily say, well, that sounds like a civil law to me. Throw it out the door because I don't want to accept it. Uh, we can't just label it as something that we don't want to do. And likewise, we can't say, well, I think this is a law that should still be enforced, so I'm going to continue to enforce it. So here's what we do. How do we solve that problem? Well, the New Testament repeats significant portions of the Old Testament. So where does the New Testament place the emphasis? So, for example, dietary laws. Steve referred to this. Um, Peter, in the book of Acts, God get, comes to him in a vision and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he shows them this, um, this blanket filled with unclean animals. And Peter says, no, 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 it's unclean. And he says, hey, the thing that I've made clean, don't you dare call unclean. 
And so Peter gets up, he kills, and he eats. And Paul later talks about meat that sacrificed idols and things like that with Christian liberty. And so uh, we take that and we say it means symbolically it's talking about the uh, ability for the uh, non-Jews to receive the Holy Spirit and to be saved, welcomed into salvation by grace through faith, and that the gospel should be taken to them. But in a very literal sense, we see this to mean that the dietary laws of Old Testament Judaism are no longer in force, especially for those of us who would identify as Greeks or uh, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And so we see as a consistent theme throughout the New Testament the fact that New Testament believers, especially Gentile believers, should not be brought under the influence and under the uh, uh, rule of the Old Testament law. Um, in fact, uh, Paul said that it, for many, it would be sinful for, them, uh, for these men to be circumcised in a way that meant that they were trying to serve the law. He said that that's not right. That's, you're trying to add works to salvation by jumping into this. You're not a Jew. You weren't raised in this. This isn't for you. And so we see a lot of these things tie in in New Testament. I encourage you to study. We could go on and on and on about this. So um, but seek, ultimately, seek New Testament correlation. Um, so if you're looking at it, most of these, um, really probably all of these that we should be following, um, find con confirmation in the New Testament. All right, let's look at wisdom and poetry. Wisdom and poetry. Um, and so this list, um, this is an interesting list. Um, does anyone see uh, uh, one of these in this list that... Uh, maybe you wouldn't normally associate within those categories. James, James. Um, James is fascinating, James is fascinating. Um, in many ways, James is what we could call the Proverbs of the New Testament, um, because James is actually written in a very similar manner to the book of Proverbs. Um, wisdom, literature, and poetry, they overlap in scripture consistently. Most texts tend to be predominantly one with elements of the other. Um, so let's play a very quick game, very quick game, all right? It's called, it's called the James game, all right? I'm going, to read, I'm going to read a verse. Tell me if it's in Proverbs or James, because I want, to, I want to illustrate this for you, okay? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs or James? How many of you say Proverbs? How many of you say James? Wow, we are pretty evenly divided. James 4, 6. All right. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Proverbs or James? How many of you say James? A few of you. How many say Proverbs? That one is Proverbs. Less people raising their hand. You guys have learned this is a harder game than you thought it would be. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor. Proverbs or James? This is a pretty well-known one. How many of you say Proverbs? How many of you say James? All right, correct. It is James. So proud of you guys. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. Proverbs or James? How many say James? How many say Proverbs? It is James. James 3.17. The fear of the Lord tendeth to life. He that hath it shall abide satisfied. How many say Proverbs? How many say James? It is Proverbs. You guys see the similarities, though? That's the point, all right? Not the who's right or wrong. I would have probably gotten about half of those right uh, if I had done it without cheating, all right? Because um, Proverbs and James are actually very, very similar, very pithy, very short and to the point. Um, so here's some helps for interpreting wisdom and poetry. First, let's talk about the wisdom literature. 
Um, we have two different types. The first of those is proverbial wisdom. Proverbial wisdom. And this is short, pithy sayings with general rules for personal well-being and godliness. Okay, and so these are short, these are to the point. These actually don't need as much context as a lot of other portions of Scripture, uh, which is fascinating because Proverbs, we get very little context. It says, oh, my son, right? And we think it's written by Solomon, and that's the gist of it, right? The rest of it is good luck um, because it kind of stands alone. James is similar. James is an epistle, um, but how does James start off? James starts off by saying, um, you know, he starts off by saying, this is James, and then he goes into, right? Um, so his introduction is like words, not verses. And then there's not really a real conclusion to the letter. It's a lot of proverbial wisdom. Um, so Proverbs has statements about how life usually works. So let's look. I gave you Proverbs 1, 8, and 9. Here, my son, hear the instruction of thy father. Forsake not the law of thy mother. So it's poetic even from the beginning. For they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy neck. So generally speaking, that's wise and good advice, correct? Now here's the thing about Proverbs. Is Proverbs, sometimes Proverbs have promises in there. We should look for those. At the same time, how many of you guys can think of a situation in which this verse would not be applicable? Uh, have you ever known someone that's had a uh, bad father and mother? Yeah. Should they listen, should people listen to everything their father or mother ever says? No. In general, though, the wisdom that a father and mother gives is going to be helpful, it's going to be beneficial, it's going to guide you in the right direction. So this is a piece of wisdom, but at the same time, this is not something that is necessarily all-encompasses. This is a statement about how life usually works. But at the same time, it's about wisdom, right? It's about gaining wisdom, which is applied knowledge. The book of James um, is slightly different in this. James' statement gives statements about life in light of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus has already come. In fact, James is, does anyone know the relation of James to Jesus? He's the brother of Jesus. So this is in light of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. This is after Jesus actually, um, Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to James, and that was part of James' conversion, that he actually appeared to his brother after the resurrection. And so James is pointing us back to Jesus throughout this wisdom. And so um, look at verses, uh, James 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. How is he exalted? Through Christ. But the rich in that he is made low. So why is the rich made low? He's humbling himself before Christ. Because of the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. His riches are going to pass away. But he's called here to rejoice. Why is he rejoicing? Because he's made low. It's a beautiful thing for someone with riches and wealth to be made low when it comes to accepting Christ as Savior and believing the gospel. And so that's just an example. I'll let you study that. Let's move on for sake of time. Um, so that's proverbial wisdom. We also have what we could call speculative wisdom. These are monologues or dialogues delving into the relationship between man and God. The two best examples of this are going to be Job and Ecclesiastes. Um, Lamentations has elements of a few different types of the genres, and so I didn't really include it in one specifically. Job tests the wisdom claims of Proverbs through the lens of suffering. So is God really wise? Is God really these things that he says he is through the lens of Job's suffering? Ecclesiastes tests these claims through the lens of skepticism, because Ecclesiastes, we believe it to be written by Solomon, a, a wise man. Uh, but he says, how does skepticism view the word of God and the wisdom of God? And so, uh, but look at this here, um, this quote here in the middle. Biblical wisdom is never intellectual attainment alone. It's a way of living in harmony with God and others. 
And so as we look at all these things, we're not just trying to be smarter people or trying to better live in harmony with God and others. Um, secondarily here, we have poetic literature, which is very closely related. Poetic literature gives us uh, figures, metaphors, and hyperboles very often. So they're very common. Here's a selection from Psalm 91, verses 5 through 7. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor the arrow that flieth by day. All right, how many of you guys today, you were afraid of arrows that fly by day? So why is this applicable, right? Well, this is a metaphor of sorts, correct? Um, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness. Is anyone afraid of pestilence walking in darkness? Maybe some of you guys are, okay, I won't go into that. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. All right? Are we walking through a body of ten thousands of people, right? Like we're not, these are all metaphors and hyperboles. These are things that are pointing us in poetic ways towards uh, revealed truth. Um, letter B, Hebrew couplets of parallel lines are often employed. Um, and so this is a couplet, Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And so we don't see as much, this brings us to letter C, we don't see as much rhyme within this kind of poetry as we see rhythm. There's a rhythm to this poetry. Um, so there are three different types of parallelism I gave you here. Um, and I'll just read them for the, really quickly, and we're not going to camp on them. But there's just, this is ways to kind of appreciate some of the beauty and what's going on here within the Psalms. We have synonymous parallelism, which is just restatement. So heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork, just restating the same thing. There's antithetic parallelism. Proverbs is full of this, um, which antithetic, it contrasts with its opposite. So he that walks with wise men shall be wise. What's the opposite of wise men? Fools. A companion of fools shall be destroyed. So a companion of wise men, companion of fools, we see a contrast here. Um, and then there's synthetic parallelism, um, which is developed or completed. So I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and what? He heard me out of his holy hill, Salah. I laid me down and slept. I awakened, for the Lord sustained me. And so it completes a thought. It doesn't repeat it. It doesn't state the opposite, it goes on to fulfill it. That's what we call synthetic parallelism. And so you can take time and you can look for those on your own time. Okay, so prophecy. Prophecy. Um, much of the Old Testament is prophecy, right? Um, and so how do we get into interpreting prophecy? Is it worthwhile to interpret prophecy? First of all, yes, I believe it is. Um, and let me go into why uh, and how. Number one, we need to determine between foretelling and foretelling. Foretelling and foretelling. Here's what I mean. Foretelling is kind of what we think of when we think about prophecy. These are events that happen in the future. Okay? So when we think prophecy, we think something's going to happen someday. That's not most of, in fact, it's not most of prophecy. Most of prophecy is actually what we would call forthtelling. This is applying God's truth to God's people. This is, um, this is Hosea getting up and prophesying, uh, speaking truth about how the people of Israel are being unfaithful to God, symbolized with his relationship with his wife, who he uh, pulled out of uh, prostitution and sexual slavery, right? Uh, and so we see that this is, this, is, this is what's true. God's people behave like it's true. He's not necessarily prophesying of new things, although there's some elements of that. Most of it, he's just saying, do what you know to do. Do what you know to do. Secondly, determine between what's already been fulfilled and what's awaiting fulfillment. Um, much of the prophecy of Scripture that we read is prophecy that, for us, has been fulfilled in the past. When they wrote it, it was future, 
But for us, it was fulfilled in Christ, or it was fulfilled another way with the, the Babylonian captivity coming back out of that. It was fulfilled in other ways. So is it already fulfilled? Is it awaiting fulfillment? Um, determine what's likely figurative, what's likely literal. Um, and so much prophecy is figurative prophecy. Um, and then number four, remember, most prophecies are not directly attached to a timeline. Mo the overwhelming majority are not directly attached to a timeline. So be careful to let prophecies be fulfilled as God intended without attempting to force them to fit present context if not meant to be. Um, so what I mean by that is this. Um, when we look at prophecy, most of prophecy is this is going to happen. Does it say this is going to happen in the year such and such? So the first century, they believed that Jesus was going to come then, correct? Um, Middle Ages, Jesus is coming soon, right? Today, Jesus is coming soon, right? Now, is that to say we shouldn't believe and be anticipating Jesus coming soon? No, 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 not at all. We should absolutely be anticipating it. It is the next thing on the prophetic calendar. Does that mean that I can get up and say, in the next five years, in the next ten years, or in my lifetime, Jesus is coming back? I, I can't make that statement because the Bible doesn't attach to a timeline. I can say, wow, I can really see how this thing could someday be fulfilled. Wow, I could see how technology and culture is advancing to the point where many of these things can be fulfilled. That doesn't mean that they're going to be fulfilled within my lifetime. I'm waiting for that, and I hope for that, and you should too. But that doesn't mean, we can't look around saying, oh, I'll apply this to this, I'll apply this to this. What's really fun is to go back and find VHSs from like the 1980s when prophecy was really hitting, the, like people really wanted to dig into apocalyptic prophecy. And then you go listen to them today, and it's all about the Soviet Union and how the Soviet Union is coming together. If you, in case you didn't know, the Soviet Union does not exist anymore, all right? Hasn't existed in my lifetime, okay? Um, and so for me to hear someone talking about the Soviet Union, I'm not saying that no one from that region would be involved. I'm saying the Soviet Union as a political organization doesn't exist, right? You all see that? Okay, all right, good. All right, end of rant. Historical narrative, New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So how do we interpret these narratives? Um, these are actually two different categories. First of all, the Gospels. The Gospels are an example of ancient biography. It's called a bios. Um, and a bios is focused on key events. So it's not trying to trace everything that ever happened in his life. It's not even always flowing chronologically, although most of the Gospels do. There are times in Mark that it doesn't, which I made a note of here. Um, but this is just focusing on the key events. This is the miracles that Jesus did, the key teachings that Jesus gave. These are the high points. So it's leaving out everything in between, all right? Um, but this is a very common way of writing. Then the harmony of the Gospels. I mentioned chronology. Sometimes it's topical, especially in Mark. Most of the Gospels are chronological. Um, then the harmony of it. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, which this means seeing together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke overlap greatly. Um, John kind of comes at it from a totally different angle. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of start out by introducing who Jesus is, and then um, introducing him as the Messiah, introducing him as a servant, introducing him in these ways. John just starts off, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. You know, it wasn't trying to build this thing that Jesus is the Messiah, is God. It's saying, hey, this Jesus guy, a.k.a. God, here's what he did, and it starts from that assumption. And so they work from a little bit different ways. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke read very similarly. John just, like takes a wrecking ball to the whole thing, and he's like, I'm not arguing it. This is how it is, all right? Um, that's just John. That's just John. Um, his nickname, by the way, was one of the sons of thunder, so that's just John. John's wrecking ball to the whole thing, all right? Um, Acts uh, is a, considered a legitimization, so it's intended to defend and legitimize, give history to the ancient church. 
it's characterized by the moving of the Holy Spirit through the first generation of Jesus' disciples. So Acts takes place within 30 years of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. The first generation of disciples we find recorded in the book of Acts. And so um, pastor's been preaching through Acts, and he kind of took a little bit of a break to take a mini-series on the Holy Spirit, right? Why? Because Acts is about the Holy Spirit. It totally makes sense to do that because Acts is inseparable from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, as we see that, Acts is really the moving of the Holy Spirit through Jesus' first disciples. Um, The next that we see is we see the epistles. We talked about this a lot last week. I don't want to rehash all of it, um, but follow the author's interpretation of the Gospels. um, Who is Jesus? How does his life affect me? And then the indicative imperative pattern. What's true? How do I respond to truth? We're not legalists just grabbing do this, do this, do this. Our truth uh, is the foundation for the things that we do. Um, And then finally, last one is apocalyptic. Um, which this overlaps some with prophecy, so I don't want to belabor this either. What are some helps for uh, understanding and interpreting apocalyptic books? First of all, understand the background. Um, the two major apocalyptic, really the only two that we would consider apocalyptic books, um, would be Daniel portions of and Revelation, again, portions of. Neither of these are exclusively, it's important to note, neither of these are exclusively apocalyptic. Um, Daniel, actually, the first half, it's historical narrative. Revelation is an epistle. Really, in truth, Revelation's an epistle. It's written to seven churches. John is told to write, and there are, this is revelation that's given. So it contains apocalyptic literature. Uh, but what's going on here? Daniel is in the middle of the Babylonian captivity. There's a theme to this. Daniel is God's people displaced. Revelation, persecution of the early church, who is waiting and crying for Jesus' return. Do we see a theme? All right. I'll break it down here in just a second here. All right. Um, so, so, number two, understand the genre within this. Um, is it prophetic? Is it a narrative? Is it an epistle? What's taking place within the section of the book that I am reading? Because not everything is all things. There are different breaks of logic and understanding within the book. Um, and then, thirdly here, this ties in with that first one, understand the purpose. Both are written in cultures asking, where is God? Both of them are days and age that people are looking around saying, where is God? Is God not doing anything? Is he not going to save his people? Is he not going to rescue his people? Why are we going through these difficulties? Why are we living in this day? Why are these things happening? Where is God? Why isn't he silent? Why isn't he working? But what do they do? Both of them reveal God at work. Both of them reveal God at work. And those are some of the things that would make these different from other prophetic literature. So when we're looking at apocalyptic books, take those elements of the prophetic literature that we discussed and bring them in line with uh, these, these things that we mentioned specifically of these two apocalyptic books. All right, so for you, study at home. Um, and so I didn't provide a lot of because we went through a lot of different genres. But I would encourage you, take some time and even compare the different genres of Scripture. Do some studying across some of these. Maybe even look at books that contain a couple different amp- elements of those. Sample those. Begin to go through, begin to work through those, and, and see what they look like, see what they feel like, the differences between those as you're trying to study out the genres. So again, this is not to take away from observe, interpret, apply. That's our foundation. This is to give you some tools to be able to do that in a deeper way. Um, Next week, we'll talk a little bit about outside resources, how do we utilize other people's interpretations, commentaries, and things like that um, before we wrap up in two weeks talking about difficult passages. Let's pray, and we'll be out of here. Father, I thank you for the